Hi, and welcome to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast, where you'll find cutting-edge, science-informed tools for navigating anxiety. Whether you struggle with anxiety or have a loved one who does, this podcast is for you. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Jared, licensed clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania. An expert in the treatment of anxiety, I'm also an imperfect mom, wife, daughter, sister, and friend doing my best to show up and skillfully traverse the beautifully messy, emotion-strewn path that we call life. While I hope that this podcast helps you do the same, please note that the information shared here is not a substitute for therapy and is intended for educational purposes only. And now, without further ado, let's get started. Hi, this is episode 9 of the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. And before diving in today, I want to note that this episode contains content that may be scary and disturbing for some listeners, especially little ones. So if you're listening with young kids at home, you may want to pop in some headphones and check in with yourself throughout the episode. And if you find yourself feeling upset as you listen, I'd encourage you to reach out to a friend, family member, or mental health provider. You can also always go to your local emergency department, call 911, or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. And with that said, here's the episode. Today, in honor of Suicide Prevention Month, I'm going to be talking about suicide risk and prevention in patients with anxiety disorders. And I realize that this topic may seem somewhat surprising to some of you, as we don't often talk about these two things, suicide and anxiety, together, right? Most of us have come to associate suicide with depression, which we tend to take very seriously. But perhaps because of its universal nature and the fact that others often feel anxious about things that don't make us anxious, we can be quick to downplay and dismiss anxiety as silly, dramatic, or just anxiety. So it might seem strange or even unnecessarily painful to spend a whole episode talking about suicidal behavior among individuals who struggle with anxiety. But this is such an important yet poorly understood topic that affects so many of us that even when my guest for today got sick and had to cancel, I decided to cover it anyway on this last day of Suicide Prevention Month. So let's start by talking about what we know regarding anxiety and suicide. First, research has shown that among individuals who have made a suicide attempt at some point in their lives, which is a strong risk factor for future attempts and completed suicide. Roughly 70% of these individuals meet criteria for an anxiety disorder. In addition, individuals who meet criteria for an anxiety disorder are at an increased risk of considering and attempting suicide, even in the absence of co-occurring disorders such as depression. So more specifically, compared to individuals without anxiety, 
Those who have an anxiety disorder are up to six times as likely to report a history of suicidal ideation or suicide attempts. Though estimates vary from study to study, and they also vary depending on the anxiety disorder in question, with estimates tending to be highest for post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD and panic disorder. Yet regardless of the exact odds, there's a growing body of research indicating that the presence of an anxiety disorder significantly increases one's risk of dying by suicide. Now what remains unclear are the mechanisms underlying this increased risk. In other words, research has yet to reveal what exactly it is about having an anxiety disorder that makes one more likely to die by suicide. Though there are a number of hypothesized or explanations or hypotheses for this. And I'm not going to talk about all of these today, but I do think it's worth noting at least a few potential mechanisms underlying this. So first, as is sometimes the case for people with depression, it may be that some individuals with anxiety see suicide as a way of escaping the seemingly unbearable distress that they experience as a result of their anxiety. And this may be particularly true for those with severe anxiety who feel hopeless and and believe that their anxiety will never get better and that others would be better off without them. In other words, these, these individuals may be in so much pain that life no longer feels worth living. Second, as we've talked about on here before, individuals who struggle with anxiety tend to avoid things that trigger their anxiety. And as a result, they may have a limited number of the protective factors that have been shown to reduce one's risk for suicide. So for example, individuals with social anxiety who avoid relationships with others, they may lack the social support that we know can buffer against suicide. In addition, the avoidance that anxiety often pulls for can cause our worlds to contract more and more. And this can, for some people, give rise to depression, which we know to be a risk factor for suicide. And finally, individuals with anxiety disorders sometimes struggle with strong emotions in addition to anxiety, including emotions like shame, guilt, anger, and sadness. And these intense feelings may contribute to the person's pain, thus leading to the development of suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Now again, all of this is speculative and is likely different from person to person. But if you take nothing else from this episode, I hope you'll walk away with a better understanding of just how painful and devastating anxiety disorders can be. Right? Not only do they negatively impact people's functioning and quality of life, but they can also increase the chances that one's life will be cut short as a result of suicide. And given this, I want to note that the presence of an anxiety disorder is not something that should be brushed off or overlooked. Instead, anxiety disorders ought to be treated as early as possible. And this is just one of many reasons why I'm such a strong believer in using short-term evidence-based treatments when targeting anxiety, rather than dragging treatment out for many months or years. And this is because if you successfully treat the anxiety disorder or disorders with which a person is struggling, 
then theoretically you can decrease that person's risk of dying by suicide. And encouragingly, research consistently supports this idea. So for instance, research has shown that exposure-based treatment results in significant reductions, not only in anxiety, but also in suicidal ideation from pre to post treatment. That said, it's worth pausing here to note that when an individual is actively self-harming or making suicide attempts, exposure therapy probably isn't going to be the first line of treatment. Right, in these cases, safety needs to be the number one priority, meaning that the self-harming and suicidal behavior needs to be addressed before the anxiety, even if the anxiety is fueling these behaviors. And here's why. First, if someone is self-harming by cutting, burning, scratching, or hitting themselves, whenever they're feeling anxious or upset, then that's really going to undermine the, the goals of exposure therapy and prevent that individual from, from learning that they can tolerate high levels of distress without doing anything to try to make that distress go away. Second, non-suicidal self-injury or self-harm can sometimes inadvertently turn lethal and can also serve as a gateway to more severe forms of self-injury by lowering one's concern for severely harming or killing oneself. And finally, as crude and morbid as this may sound, we obviously can't treat the anxiety of a person who's dead, which is why any life-threatening behaviors must be addressed first in order for there to be even a chance that treatment, the anxiety-focused treatment will be successful. And so when an individual is engaging in life-threatening behaviors, it's critical that they learn new ways of coping with distress before initiating exposure therapy. And this is where treatments such as dialectical behavior therapy or DBT can come into play. And for those of you who aren't familiar with DBT, I'll just briefly note here that DBT is an effective, extensively researched form of cognitive behavioral therapy that was developed by Dr. Marsha Linehan to help people get out of what she calls emotional hell so that they can build lives that they experience as being worth living. It involves learning and applying new skills in order to regulate emotions more effectively. And it's considered the gold standard treatment for individuals who are engaging in suicidal or self-harming behaviors, which are sometimes referred to as parasuicidal behaviors. And I will note here that I was fortunate enough to train with Dr. Linehan for two years in graduate school. And so now that I'm an anxiety therapist, when parasuicidal behaviors occur alongside anxiety, I either do some DBT skills training before proceeding with exposure, or I refer out for a more intensive DBT program before initiating exposure therapy. And here, really, what level of care I suggest just boils down to the frequency, intensity, and severity of the parasuicidal behavior, because there's such a wide range of, of how this can present. So for example, some people experience fleeting suicidal thoughts without any actual intent to hurt or kill themselves, whereas others think about suicide frequently and for prolonged periods of time and, and really have a true wish to die. And then obviously there are people who land at varying points along this continuum, some of whom may be somewhat ambivalent about suicide. 
And as a therapist, it's really important for me to understand where someone falls in terms of suicide risk and severity so that I can respond accordingly and develop the best treatment plan for that given individual. And so to this end, when working with patients who report some degree of suicidality, I typically use something called the Linehan Risk Assessment and Management Protocol, or the LRAMP, to guide the clinical decisions that I make. And for those of you therapists listening who would like to use the LRAMP, I will include uh, a link to that on in the, the show notes for today. And you can also always just do a quick Google search. If you just type in LRAMP, I'm pretty certain the first, uh, the first result that pops up um, will take you right to an, uh, a version of the LRAMP that you can save and print out for your use. And speaking of severity, let's talk about some warning signs that might, and I'll emphasize the word might here, indicate that someone is at risk for suicide. These include talking about wanting to die or kill oneself, or saying that it would be easier to not be here anymore, looking for a way to commit suicide, like searching online, uh, you know, looking for methods to kill oneself or buying a gun, talking about feeling hopeless or having no reason to live, talking about feeling trapped or in unbearable pain, talking about being a burden to others, increasing the use of alcohol or drugs, acting anxious or agitated or behaving recklessly, sleeping too little or too much, withdrawing or isolating oneself, showing rage or talking about seeking revenge, and extreme mood swings. And again, these are warning signs, much like the signs that appear on bridges year-round stating that the bridge may be icy, right? So the presence of one or more of these signs doesn't necessarily mean that someone is actively thinking about or planning to commit suicide, though they might. And, and that's why it's worth taking them seriously whenever you notice these signs, especially if these thoughts and behaviors are new or have increased or if they follow a painful event, loss, or change, such as being fired, getting divorced, or losing a loved one. So now let's talk about what to do and not do if you notice these warning signs in your loved one. And first, I want to note that if you're having thoughts of wanting to kill yourself, it's, it's, really, it's worth reaching out for help. So call a friend or family member and talk with your therapist or find one if you don't have one already even if doing so seems hard, if it seems scary. Know that as a therapist who sometimes hears people talk about thoughts of suicide, um, you know, I know some people have concerns that a therapist might immediately have them admitted involuntarily to a hospital. And know that that's, that's usually my last, my last resort. It's never something I would want to do. So typically, I, I want to work with that person. I want to understand what's going on for them and to work together to come up with a plan of, of things that they can do when they are having strong urges to kill themselves. But I, I want to, I wanna, again, I, I consider us a team in that. It's not like me against that individual. So just keep that in mind that most therapists are uh, operating from that place that we're here to try to work with you, to help you if you are experiencing suicidality. And if you are worried about someone, please know that it's okay to ask them if they're having thoughts of killing themselves. In fact, it's really important to ask this question as it shows that you care and that you want to help. 
And I want to stress here that although some people worry that asking this question might plant the seed for suicide, this really just isn't the case, right? If you ask, you know, someone if they're killing, wanting to kill themselves and, and they aren't currently thinking about suicide, it's not as though they're suddenly now going to think that suicide is a viable option. And kind of on the flip side, if someone is already considering suicide, the thought's going to be there even if you don't ask the question. And if you don't ask, you have no way of potentially helping or really showing just how much you care. So just know that you really have nothing to lose and only so much to gain by asking this question. Now, let's say that the person you're talking with says yes, that they are thinking about suicide. Obviously, this can be a really scary thing to hear, right? Uh, And it can be easy to panic in these moments and to try to minimize the person's problems or convince them out of their feelings in an attempt to, to keep them safe. But if you think about it, this kind of response can be really shaming and invalidating and, and overwhelming and can create even more pain for the individual in front of you. So as tempting as it may be to react reflexively and jump into crisis management mode when someone says that they're thinking about suicide, it's important to remember that the person you're sitting with is a human, a human in pain. And when someone is in pain and feeling vulnerable, one of the most helpful things we can do is to simply listen non-judgmentally and empathically in order to connect with them and understand their pain. And the great thing about this is that once we understand someone's pain, we can help them begin to find ways to alleviate it. Because sometimes when we're really struggling, it can be hard to see above the fog to find a way out. And I'm not saying that there always is a, a, a quick way out or, um, or, or an easy way out, um, but it can sometimes be helpful to have this outside perspective, right? To get another view as to ways that we might be able to get through this emotional hell. And in addition to understanding what specifically is causing the person to feel so much pain, it's also important to understand the nature of the person's suicidal thoughts. So you can ask the person if they've thought of a way in which they might kill themselves. And if they have, ideally you want to work with them to remove any lethal means from the home or make these more difficult to access. So for instance, firearms should be locked and stored away, preferably outside of the home. And the same goes for any drugs or medications that have the potential to be lethal. The other thing that's important to do if you can is to stay with the person until they can get professional help. So you can help the person call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or escort them to a therapy appointment or to the nearest emergency department. And then follow up with the person afterward, ideally on a regular basis, to see how they're doing. Again, to let them know that you care, that you want them to be here and you want to help. You can also use some distress tolerance skills to help the person get through the moment and maybe even temporarily reduce some of the emotional pain that that individual is feeling. And these skills, I want to be clear, these skills are not intended to solve all of the person's problems or ensure that they'll never think of suicide again, but they can help someone feel slightly better. It can help them to tolerate the pain of the moment so that they don't act on their suicidal urges. 
And with this in mind, I want to share with you some of my favorite distress tolerance skills from DBT. And so I'll share a, a set of skills, which is actually three skills, and then one standalone skill. So the first set of skills can be remembered using the acronym TIP. And what I love about these skills is that they're designed to rapidly change our body chemistry and reduce emotional arousal. And they do so as quickly and effectively as certain drugs and medications that, that are made for the same purpose, but, but they do this without uh, any harmful side effects. So again, the acronym for these skills is TIP, which stands for tipping the temperature of your face with cold ice water, intense aerobic exercise, pace breathing, and then there's actually a second P, um, which is paired muscle relaxation. And I'm just going to go through the first three of these, uh, these uh, so the, the TIP and the first P, um, because these are the ones that I personally like best. So the first, tipping the temperature of the face with ice water might sound funny, but it's actually incredibly effective at rapidly reducing emotional and physiological arousal. And this is because when we use this skill, which I'll, I'll walk you through in a minute, uh, this evokes something called the dive reflex, which is something that we're programmed to have whenever we're submerged in very cold water. And this reflex causes our heart rate to slow down drastically in order to conserve energy and heat our core. And what's neat about this is that when we can bring on this dive reflex in just as little as 30 seconds without having to go into freezing cold ocean water. And, and we can do this by getting a bowl of ice water, holding our breath, and then dunking our heads into the bowl of ice water for 30 to 60 seconds. Or if, if you're like me and you'd rather not get your face and maybe your hair dripping wet, you can get a flexible gel ice pack and wrap it in a paper towel just so it's not too, too cold. And then cover your eyes and upper cheeks, like right to your temples with this while putting your head down and holding your breath. And again, you just have to do this for about 30 seconds. And if you can't do it for 30 seconds, that's okay too, right? Even the, like a shorter amount of time will probably do the trick. Um, and again, I realize that this might sound silly, but I've actually tracked people's heart rates and I've done this with many, many people and I've tracked their heart rates before and after using this skill. And I typically see heart rates drop by more than 50% when it's actually done properly. And, and if you haven't tracked your heart rate before, you'll, you, you may not know this, but that's actually something that we wouldn't see without this skill, right? Our heart rate, if we get our heart rate up, it's not just going to decline by more than 50% without, within 30 seconds just on its own. So this skill really works wonders, in my opinion. That said, I do want to note that because this skill can rapidly reduce our heart rate, you should consult with your healthcare provider before using this skill if you have a heart condition, if you take a beta, beta blocker, or if you have an eating disorder. So with that said, I want to move on to the second skill, which is intense aerobic exercise for 20 to 30 minutes. And this really can, this helps when we're feeling uh, really intensely distressed because it helps us expend some of the pent up energy that we tend to hold in our bodies when we're distressed. So you can go for a run, go for a power walk, play basketball, 
dance to upbeat music or, or really do whatever form of fairly intense movement works for you. And this, this kind of exercise, in, in addition to you know releasing some of that pent-up energy, it also helps to bring about positive emotions, which can be really helpful when we're feeling overwhelmed or when our mood is really low. And the final tip skill that I'll talk about today is pace breathing. And we've all heard people say, you know, when really upset, somebody might tell you to take a deep breath. But it's it's not actually the deep breathing that, that helps because sometimes when we say take a deep breath, usually what people do is they take this big inhalation and, and actually our heart rate tends to speed up when, on, when we inhale, but it slows down on the exhale. And so what we can do to kind of have a calming effect on our body is we can slow our, our breathing down um, significantly. So we can slow it down and then we can breathe out more slowly and for longer than we breathe in. So for instance, you can breathe in for three to four seconds and then you can breathe out for five to seconds, sorry, five to seven seconds. And, and like ice water, uh, this skill, it can really rapidly reduce our heart rate. Though I will say, I find that this skill requires a good amount of mental energy, right? And we really have to focus on breathing in this way, which can be a little challenging and uncomfortable. It's not something that we typically do, so it might not come so naturally to us. So we have to work hard to do this skill. And and at least um, I've found that sometimes this can be hard to use when we're really upset because we just don't have that the you know the the resources in those moments of distress to really be able to concentrate on doing something like this but it can be useful and it can also serve you know if we're if we're not if we're able to do this skill it can serve as a form of distraction um, from our intense discomfort and as you'll know if you've been listening to this podcast i don't typically encourage distraction especially when it's anxiety that we're feeling, right? I'd actually rather people learn that they can sit with that anxiety. But I do think that there can be a time and place for distraction. I, I, and I, per, I really do think, especially when feeling really angry or really... Um, uh, anger is probably, for me, the, the one that I find it most helpful for. But sometimes for sadness too, distraction can be useful. And so you can distract, again, by focusing on your breathing, uh, or in this, I should say, this is the, the final skill, the standalone skill that I wanted to teach or talk about, but you can also distract with, um, movies, um, or activities and, and there are other ways you can distract as well, but those are the ones I'll highlight now. So the key when you're using distraction is that you are distracting with something that's going to generate an emotion that's that's different or opposite to what you're feeling. So if you're really sad and depressed, you don't want to watch a sad and depressing movie. Um, but you could watch, uh, you know, uh, a comedy, or you could watch a stand-up comedian on TV, or you could do something again active. You could bake bread. You could, like I said before, you could kind of like listen to music and dance along to it. Um, doing something that might um, produce some different emotions than what you're feeling. So that's the final skill I wanted to mention for today. And I'll probably at some point do more episodes on DBT, maybe with some of my colleagues from grad school, because uh, I, I think these skills are just really, they can be life-changing. And I think they're critical for just about all of us, even if we don't have problems with anxiety or emotion dysregulation. But I wanted to at least put out a handful today. 
And I want to note that these skills and, and the steps that I walk through, if you're you know, talking with someone who's thinking about suicide, these steps, these skills are ones that you can use as well if you have thoughts of suicide. So just kind of to recap, you can talk with someone or multiple people about your struggles, ask them to stay with you and help you remove any lethal means, seek professional help and use some of the distress tolerance skills I talked about today to help you get through the moment until your suicidal urges have subsided. And together, these make up at least part of what we call um, safety or crisis planning in therapy. And it can be really helpful to write these steps down on paper and then to put this paper somewhere where you can easily, you know, you can really easily get to it uh, when you're feeling distressed because it can be hard to remember to do these things when we're in the midst of a crisis. So I'd encourage you to, you know, jot these down. I'll also include some links to safety plans in the show notes for today so that you can have a template to follow uh, if you decide to create your own safety plan or to help somebody else create one. All right, before wrapping up, I want to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD for a minute. And I'll be talking much more about OCD in the next few episodes, but I want to note here that some individuals with OCD have a fear of harming or killing themselves, which can sometimes be confused for suicidal ideation. And although this can be a tricky distinction to make, I want to briefly talk about how we differentiate obsessions about killing oneself from suicidality. And the main thing to look for is how someone feels about and experiences these thoughts. So individuals with harm-related OCD typically experience suicidal thoughts as being intrusive, unwanted, and very distressing. And these thoughts are usually so upsetting that they, they pull individuals to try to avoid having these thoughts in the first place. And they also lead people to perform some sort of ritual in response to these thoughts when they do arise in an attempt to make them go away and decrease the anxiety that they cause. So for example, someone with harm-related OCD might avoid things like using sharp knives, standing on balconies, or reading stories about others who've died by suicide. And when a suicidal thought pops up, they may try replacing these thoughts with more pleasant thoughts or distracting themselves in some other way. Or they may reassure themselves again and again by mentally reviewing all the reasons they don't want to die, almost as if on a loop. By contrast, those who experience suicidal ideation make the conscious choice to think about suicide and they don't feel an urge or need to avoid or suppress these thoughts. In addition, these thoughts often produce a sense of relief, including a reduction in one's physiological arousal and are usually accompanied by a genuine wish to die. Now again, it can be really confusing trying to tease these apart. And so if you are having any thoughts of suicide, and if you're unsure as to whether these are obsessions or suicidal ideation, I'd encourage you to discuss these with a therapist who has experience in treating OCD so that they can help you differentiate between the two. And this, this can be critical because as you can imagine, treatment is going to look very different depending on the nature of these thoughts. And with that said, I'm going to stop here Though I'll be talking lots more about OCD and its treatment in the coming episodes. 
But for now, I want to stress again that if you or a loved one are struggling with anxiety, it's worth taking the time to speak with a qualified mental health professional, especially if you're having suicidal thoughts as well. And if you aren't sure as to how to go about finding a therapist, you can visit the resources section on my website where I list some links of places that you can go to uh, help you jumpstart that search. Also, as I said at the outset of this episode, if you're having a mental health emergency, please dial 911, go to your local emergency department, or call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-8255. Lastly, I want you to know that if you or someone you care about is struggling with anxiety and thoughts of suicide, you don't have to struggle alone. No matter how dark things might seem right now, there are so many people in this world who want to help you find your way back into the light. So I want to reiterate the importance of reaching out for help, even if doing so seems hard. We all struggle at times, and as scary and overwhelming as these times of struggle may seem, we can get through them. We can get out of that emotional hell. And believe it or not, when we do, we might even find some value in these darkest of hours. And I want to leave you with the words of Madeline LeEngel, who was the author of The Wrinkle in Time and who once wisely noted, maybe you have to know the darkness before you can appreciate the light. Thank you for listening to the Anxiety Savvy Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a five-star review and share it with your friends and family. As a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not a substitute for therapy. If you are having a mental health emergency, dial 911 or go to your nearest emergency department. And if you are looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources section of my website, alissajared.com.